this morning, I want to begin by looking just at the, uh, the title and the opening greeting. You know, in preaching class, they often tell you that when you open up a sermon, uh, you have two minutes to hook people's attention. And so a good preacher will tell a story or a joke or will tell you why you need to listen to this sermon. And here I am, I've told you that I'm going to begin this morning by talking to you about the title and the opening greeting. And I, I just want to say that it's much more interesting than you might think. And so what I want to do this morning is I want us to, to, to look at four kind of unusual features of the title and the opening greeting. And then I want us to see the thread that kind of ties these four features together. And this thread will give us a window into really what is at the heart of Christianity. And so we're going to see that this morning by looking at the title and the opening greeting. And so let's note four unusual features about the title and the opening greeting. And we're going to begin by looking at the title. Notice what uh, the title says. Uh, It's right there at the, the header of your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, you should grab one, open it up so you can look at it with us at this. It, it simply titles it like this, The Letter of Paul to the Colossians. So let me begin by stating the obvious. This is a letter. It's actually a personal letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a group of Christians uh, who lived in kind of a a smallish city, uh, the city of Colossae. You know, there were some major towns in the Greco-Roman world. There was Rome, there was Corinth, there was Ephesus. Paul wrote letters to those large cities and churches in those cities. But here he's writing a letter to kind of a smallish, uh, more, uh, I I guess, a, a city of less prominence and importance than those other major cities. And he's writing to this group of Christians there. And so the first observation that we're going to make is that this is a letter. Now, in the first century, as the story goes, uh, there was a leader in this early church in Colossae whose name was Epaphras. And if you are pregnant, maybe with a young boy, uh, you might consider the name Epaphras. Uh, you could shorten it to Epa or maybe Fras um, if you want. Um, but um, this guy was the name of the church planner in the city of Colossae. And he was a colleague of Paul. And almost certainly Paul had sent him off to this uh, town that Paul himself had never been to, to go and start a church. And now, as the story goes, Paul is likely in prison in the city of Ephesus. And he gets a word from Epaphras, who's come to visit him there, about how things are going in the church in Colossae. And he's a little bit concerned because the church is facing pressures uh, to move away from the centrality and the supremacy of Jesus and to put other things at the very center of their life. And so he writes this letter in order to uh, inform them, in order to encourage them. You know, back then, uh, they didn't have means of communication like we do. Uh, They wouldn't call or text or email or uh, put a post of a video of uh, a little message he might put on uh, Instagram. Instead, he would write a letter. And so this is a personal letter that is written by the Apostle Paul to this church in Colossae. And when you get to the the end of the letter, you just see how personal it is. And I wanna just highlight this for you. Uh, Paul writes this. Uh, He gives a number of different shout outs from some of his colleagues and friends. He says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas and uh, Jesus, who is called Justice, and Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Jesus Christ, they all greet you. And Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and to the church in her house. In other words, Paul is giving a very personal greeting in this very personal letter. 
And so on the one hand, uh, there's nothing unusual about this. You know, in the first century, letter writing was very common. This is how you communicated. And we have other letters from the ancient world. Uh, for example, Cicero has volumes of his letters and people, you know, kind of look at them and study them. And so it's not unusual that Paul is writing a personal letter to this church of people that he had some friends uh, who, who were there and some other people that he was greeting and all of this stuff. Nothing unusual about that. What is unusual is that you and I are studying this letter 2,000 years later on the other side of the world, and that this letter, along with uh, the other letters that the Apostle Paul wrote, as well as some biographies of Jesus and a few other letters from uh, some of the other early church leaders, what is unusual is that this collection of writings, including these letters, is the most sold read, studied, translated collection of writings in the history of the world. I was listening to an interview this last week with a British historian whose name was Tom Holland, uh, not to be confused with the greatest Spider-Man ever, that Tom Holland. No, this is um, actually a British historian. He's a writer and he's not a Christian. He's something more of a secular humanist. But he had this epiphany because he spent the most of his professional life writing about the ancient world, the Greeks and the Romans and all of that stuff. And he turned his attention at one point to uh, the, the early writings in the early church for a project that he was working on. And he said that when he studied the Greeks and the Romans, he found almost uh, nothing in that world that he felt kind of like resonated with him uh, in, in his own experience in the modern world, you know, because it was so violent and it was so, you know, patriarchal and misogynistic and, uh, you know, abusive. And then they would glory in all of that stuff. And he says, that's just, it's different than uh, the modern, you know, world we inhabit. And then he opened up the letters of Paul and he says, it, it occurred to him, he, he's like, wait a second, this speaks to the world I inhabit today. Some of the values that I'm finding in this text are the very values that have shaped the Western world I inhabit. And this sent him on this broad journey of kind of exploring uh, more about Christianity, its influence on the ancient world. And in the interview, he said this. He said, almost everything that explains the modern world is found in the letters of the Apostle Paul. He says, the way the West shapes international law and concepts like human rights, he says, they don't go back to the Greeks or the philosophers. Uh, they don't go back to the Roman imperialists. Rather, they go back to the apostle Paul. His letters are along with the four gospels, and I quote, the most influential, most impactful, most revolutionary writings that have emerged out of the ancient world. And so look, if you're new to Christianity, you know, maybe you're, you're, you don't believe the Bible, you don't believe this stuff, you should at least pay attention to this letter that we're studying because this gives you insight into the world we inhabit. And if you are a follower of Jesus, we say the reason why these writings are so studied and so meditated upon and so transformative and so influential is because these writings are more than letters. And Paul actually self-consciously was aware that what he was writing was simply more than a personal letter. Rather, it contained revelation from God. And look at how he puts it in Colossians 1, verses 25 to 27. And he's describing his own kind of role in 
the world, his own calling and vocation as a minister. And he says, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. So he says, I was given a trust. I was given a stewardship. And what was that? To make the word of God fully known. The mystery that was hidden for ages and generations, but has now been revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now behind these words is a deep conviction of the early New Testament writers that God is love. And love desires to disclose what is in love's heart. Uh, if you want to know someone and, and you love them and they love you, they will make themselves known to you. And the early Christian says that God is love and therefore God has disclosed his love. He has disclosed his plan to us. And how has he done that? Well, first he has done that in the incarnation in the life and in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the fullest disclosure of the very heart of God. But then God called, he commissioned certain leaders in the early Christian movement to give further revelation about who God is and about what God's revelation in Christ means for all of us. And this is how Paul understood his own vocation. He was going out giving further revelation, further disclosure through his writings about who God is and what God is up to in the world in Jesus Christ. And so this makes this piece of writing very, very unusual because it's not just a personal letter. It's a personal letter that Paul is writing to a church that actually discloses to us on the other side of the world, 2000 years later, who God is and what he is about in this world. So let's continue on. So number one, we've noted something about the title. It's a letter of Paul to the Colossians. Secondly, let's talk a little bit about the author. Notice how uh, Paul introduces himself to us all. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. Now, if you were to walk up to somebody, maybe at a cocktail party, or maybe you're on the airplane and you meet somebody who's sitting next to you and you were to introduce yourself to them, how would you do it? How would you introduce yourself to them? Likely you wouldn't do it like this. You wouldn't say, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. It sounds strange. And yet this is the unusual way in which Paul introduces himself to the church. So what is he talking about here? Well, an apostle is somebody who is something of an authorized emissary, somebody who is given essentially a role, a vocation, a job, a badge of responsibility in the early Christian movement. And those who were given this job were called to be the very foundation of the church, to go out and to teach the world about their experience of Jesus, uh, to plant churches, and basically to lay the foundation that the rest of church history would build upon. And Paul was one of these early apostles. He was an authorized emissary who was called to go out and to announce to the world that Jesus, not Caesar, was Lord and to establish communities that were centered around Jesus and his way of life in this world. But notice how he describes this call into ministry. He says, I was an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Now, 
there's an entire story that sits below the surface of this phrase. And it is the story of the conversion. It is one of the most uh, famous and well-known and influential and important conversion stories in the history of the world. And it's the conversion of the Apostle Paul. You see, he didn't begin as a writer of New Testament scriptures. He began as a persecutor of the early church. And the best way I've heard it described, the best way to understand the Apostle Paul I've heard uh, described by a a New Testament scholar named N.T. Wright is Paul's early life was something akin to a Islamic fundamentalist. Uh, This was somebody who was willing to resort to violence in order to impose the ways of God. In fact, uh, he was a extreme conservative, which meant that he was deeply fearful of his own religious tradition being changed or formed in a different way than he had received. And what's what's fascinating is that this person who was this, this religious fundamentalist willing to resort to hate and to violence to impose his religious beliefs on others and to go to any manner of extreme action in order to prevent uh, his religion from being changed, this guy was dramatically changed and he became this radically innovative, creative, uh, progressive religious leader that took uh, Judaism into a whole new reality wrapped around Jesus of Nazareth. And he moves from being one who was marked out centrally by hate to being what one one, uh, biographer of Paul called the apostle of love the one who went around announcing to the world that all of the former boundaries that prevented people from becoming a part of God's people had been deconstructed through the cross and resurrection of Jesus. And now God was welcoming all manner of people into his family, apart from all of their religious observance, apart from ethnicity, apart from all the previous boundaries, they could be brought into God's family. And the hinge that swung Paul from being a persecutor of the church to its greatest missionary and advocate was, as it says here, the gracious will of God. As the story goes, Paul actually was on his way to send some letters over to some leaders who would have Christians put to death. And he's on his horse, he's on the road uh, to Tarshish and God's grace interrupts his life and it invades him and it knocks him off his horse and he falls down on the ground. And Jesus confronts him and he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then he says, get up. And he says, I am going to make you a witness of my great love among all of the Gentiles. And so when Paul says that he was sent out and commissioned by Jesus and by the will of God, he's not simply giving an intellectual kind of articulation of what might've been, you know, a very studious call where he goes to seminary and he goes through a church and he gets properly licensed and ordained. No, he's referring to an encounter he had with the grace of God, where God invaded his life and radically transformed him. And so he introduces himself as Paul the apostle by the will of God. And so we move from the title to the author. And now thirdly, I want you to note the recipients of this letter. And notice how he, the unusual way he describes them. Verse two, he says, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. 
He says, to the saints and faithful brothers at, and sisters in Christ at Colossae. Now, from our study of the letter of Colossians itself, we, we, we come to discover that this was a very, very diverse community of people. A little bit later in Colossians 3, Paul describes the group like this. He says, here there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. And we're almost certain that he's given us here a window into the makeup, the sociological makeup of that early community. And they were a community that was ethnically diverse. Uh, there was Jews and there was non-Jews. They were culturally diverse. There was very cultured Greeks as well as uncivilized barbarians. Uh, they were socioeconomically diverse. There were slaves and there were free people. Uh, they were generationally diverse. He, he addresses both parents as well as children. And all of these former boundaries that divided them as a people and that taught them where they stood in the hierarchy in the Roman society that was incredibly stratified, that, that was all about where you stood on the social status ladder. Paul says, in spite of all of that, he says, God is forming you together as one new family. And it's as if he says in this opening verse, he, when he says to the saints and to the faithful brothers and sisters, he's saying, look, I am redefining you and your identity. You used to find your identity in how you were named by the surrounding culture, but I am giving you a new identity. You are in a new family. And notice the phrase that he uses to describe this new family. He says, you're faithful brothers and sisters, but then he also says, you're saints. And again, this is, a, this is an unusual way to describe a community of people. I mean, I have never, uh, when I've talked about you all, Christ Church, I've never talked about you as the saints. And it's not because I don't think you're great people. It's just, I don't think in those categories. But this word saints was very important to the apostle Paul. He was formerly a Pharisee. And the word in Greek behind this is the word that was used to describe the holy things in ancient Israel. And so they had a temple and in their temple, uh, there were special objects. There was utensils that were used in temple worship and they were not common. They were holy, they were saintly, they were set apart. And then there were special robes that they would use. And of course there was common robes, but then for those that were set apart for holy use in the temple, they were sacred robes. And then there was uh, candlesticks that they would use at home and they were common, but then there was very sacred and holy uh, candles that were used in temple worship. And the word, of course, used to describe these instruments that were not common, but were sacred and set apart was the word holy. And what Paul does here is he renames this community of believers. He said, formerly, you might have been, you might have carried that old negative names, uh, ugly or fat or stupid or failure, or you might've been formally defined by your dysfunctional family or by your low status in society. He says, but no more. You are given a new identity. You are given a new name. You are given a new status. God has set you apart as sacred and holy. And I think it is significant for us to note that Paul names the church community around him as both saints as well as family. 
And it's important for us to follow his lead and often speak of each other as both saints and family. We need to speak of each other as family. You know, I was listening to an interview more recently with the intellectual Cornell West. And in this interview, you know, Cornell West, if you know anything about him, he's on the pretty far left. But it was fascinating because in this interview, he started to talk about Donald Trump, who of course is on the, on the right. And I was fascinated by how he described Trump. He kept speaking of brother Trump. He said, brother Trump and brother Trump. And it was so arresting to me because it was so different from how our political discourse and rhetoric often goes. Often we demonize people. We don't humanize them with this kind of familial language. And yet this is what Paul is doing in our letter. He's not demonizing, he is humanizing with familial language. And I just wanna invite you to take maybe some people within the church that you have had some disagreements with, you have difficulties with, and, 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 and humanize them with familial language. These are your brothers and sisters, but not just brothers and sisters in Christ. They are also saints. They are sacred and they are holy. And again, this is fascinating to me because, you know, in using this term, he is, he is emphatically saying, you are not common. You are set apart for God and for his use in this world. And the the family that God has brought you into, this is a community of saints, people who have been set apart for God. You know, C.S. Lewis, who in his great essay, The Weight of Glory, put it like this. He says, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal and their life is, is to ours as the life of a gnat. He says, but it is immortals with whom we joke, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. This does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. We must play, but our merriment must be of that kind. And it is in fact the merriest kind which exists between people who have from the outset taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, and no presumption. And so Paul is modeling for us something here in his naming of this community. He he is naming them by the grace of God. By God's grace, they have been set apart from their commonness. By God's grace, they have been brought into a new family. And by God's grace, he will now think about them and view them and speak to them. And so how do you speak about others? How do you speak about yourself? You know, I was thinking this week about, you know, that great scene in The Lord of the Rings, you know, where um, the character Gollum, you know, he's got two sides to his personality. There's the Schmeagel snide, and then there's the Gollum side. And the Schmeagel is kind of his more, uh, it's his better nature. And then the Gollum side is his wicked, evil nature. And there's this great scene where they're having a debate with one another. And Schmeagel, speaking of the Hobbit, says, uh, but master is my friend. And Gollum speaks so negatively over him. He says, you don't have any friends. Nobody likes you. And then he starts saying, liar, deceiver, murderer. And he starts doing all this negative speech over Schmeagel. 
And I just thought that is so wise and insightful at a psychological level, because what he is doing is what many of us do. We've got this part that speaks all this negativity over ourselves, and those are not the words of grace. You know, we are invited in the gospel to speak truer and better words over ourselves, set apart, holy by God, a part of God's family with God as your father and brothers and sisters around you. And to use that same kind of speech and language as we think and as we speak over others. And so we've noted, number one, something about the title, what's unusual there. Secondly, something about... Paul and how he identifies himself, which is unusual there. Uh, thirdly, we've noted how he addresses this church and what's unusual there. And then finally, I want you just to note his opening greeting. These are the first words he speaks to the church and what's unusual there. Look at what he says in verse uh, two. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Now, what's interesting is Paul here is taking the standard greeting in the Greco-Roman world, which was grace, uh, the Greek word charis. And then he was taking uh, the common Hebrew greeting, the way Jews would greet each other, which is peace or the word shalom. And he brings these two, two things together in a way that they had not been brought together before and in a way that was informed by his unique theology that he discovered in Jesus. And it's as if he is saying with this, great, this greeting, he is saying, look, grace is the very beginning word that, you are, that, that is spoken over you in the Christian life. It's interesting, at the end of the letter, he actually ends with a word of grace. Notice how he ends, this is the very last phrase of the letter. So he says this, he says, grace be with you. So he opens with grace to you and he closes with grace be with you. And then as you get kind of into the middle of the letter and he's talking about how they came to experience the gospel, he speaks of it as an encounter with grace. Notice how he puts it in Colossians chapter one, uh, verse six. He speaks about the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world and is bearing fruit and, in, and is growing as it does among you since you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. In other words, uh, the letter begins and ends and is infused in the middle with grace because this is the Christian life. It, is, it begins with an intrusion of the grace of God that transforms us and that renames us and re-narrates our story. It, it begins with God speaking his truth and his love over our lives in a way that is stronger and truer and better than the words that were spoken over our lives from our dysfunctional family or from our negativity in our head. This is a word of grace. It is what is embodied in the gospel when God gives himself fully and reservedly, not for his friends, but for his enemies, for those who had rejected him. This is God's grace breaking into creation, breaking into the world. And it is the grace of God that leads ultimately to the Hebrew idea of peace or shalom. That word shalom is a rich, evocative word in the Hebrew imagination. It actually means human flourishing. It's not simply the cessation of war and hostility. It's actually the presence of wholeness and human flourishing. 
And what Paul is saying is he's saying, look, it is ultimately the grace of God, an encounter with God's unmerited, undeserved ocean of love and his favor and his mercy over our lives that ultimately will lead us into a life marked by human flourishing. And so he begins this, this, this letter with this greeting of grace and peace. And so now what I wanna do is I just wanna stand back and I want to observe what ties each one of these unusual features together. With the title, we learn that this is a letter, but it's more than a letter. It's actually a word of God to us, a word of love, a word that is gracious, that breaks into our world and reveals who he is. From Paul's own self-identification, we learn about his own transformation from a religious zealot of hate to being the apostle of love. And the hinge that broke into his life was the gracious will of God that turned him on its head and that sent him on a whole new trajectory in life. And then we see from the, the, the recipients and how he names them, that he names them by God's grace. They are saints and they're part of God's family. And then he speaks at the very beginning and at the end of this letter, a word of grace. And you're seeing what ties all of this together. It is the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And this is what stands at the very center and at the very heart of Christian existence. This is what stands at the very heart of human existence that ultimately leads to our healing and our human flourishing. And here is my concern this morning. My concern this morning is that for many of us, the idea of grace has become commonplace and we are actually numb to the word. You know, I uh, grew up, uh, at, you know, in my teenage years, learning how to play the guitar. And, you know, when you first begin playing the guitar, your fingers are very sensitive to those steel strings. And uh, after, you know, a few weeks, you know, your fingers are very, very sore and they're raw. But then after a period of time, uh, the tips of your fingers start to grow callous through the use on those steel strings. And I think within the church, through overuse, many of us have become callous to this word grace. And we almost think of it as simply niceness or maybe tolerance, but it is far more than that. It is the encounter of grace that actually transforms your life and will start to make you feel centered and yourself again. It is the power of God's grace when it breaks into your life that actually will begin to free you from addictions and from powers that have gotten a hold of your life. It is the grace of God that ultimately will set you on a new trajectory into the future. But in order to receive this grace, you need to be one who is open again and again and again to the grace of God. You know, we live in a culture right now that is drowning in advice. You know, we live in a very therapeutic uh, self-help culture. We've got all kinds of advice about going away to college, advice on parenting, advice on marriage, advice on career advancement. We, we are drowning in advice and, and we need advice. Advice is good. I, I, like, to, I like to hear good advice. 
Uh, advice can, you know, it can help us learn how to discipline our kids and discover our emotions and, and learn about our personality and our Enneagram type and, and, and have some improvements in our marriage. But listen, you need more than advice because your problems are way worse than you think. You know, it's not just that you haven't read the newest book on parenting or that you haven't, you know, learned about, you know, discovering more of your emotions and your personality and improving your marriage. Your problem is that you are angry and that you're fearful and that you're insecure and that you're addicted and that you need your heart changed. And it is only an encounter with the true and living God who has revealed himself in Jesus Christ when we open ourselves up to this power and to this grace that our lives can really experience change. Lord Jesus, we praise you and we thank you that you have not left us to ourselves, but you have come in your grace to win us over and to rescue us from darkness. God, would you, by your spirit, enlighten our eyes and open our hearts so that this good news might be good news to us indeed. And we ask this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen.